We would like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Preborn. When a mother meets her baby on an ultrasound and hears their heartbeat, it's a divine connection. And the majority of the time, she will choose life. But she can't do it without our help. Preborn needs us, the pro-life community, to come alongside her. One ultrasound is just $28. To donate, dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby or visit preborn.com. Jenna Ellis in the morning on American Family Radio. I love talking about the things of God because of truth and the biblical worldview. The U.S. Constitution obligates our government to preserve and protect the rights that our founders recognize come from God, our creator, not our government. I believe that scripture in the Bible is very clear that God is the one that raised up each of you and God has allowed us to be brought here to this specific moment in time. This is Jenna Ellis in the morning. Well, good morning. It is February 15th, and I hope all of you had a wonderful Valentine's Day yesterday and a pink sparkly day. Uh, if you if you like pink sparkles as much as I do, I realize that not everyone loves uh, pink and, and sparkles as much as I do. But if you are a girly girl out there listening, I hope that uh, <laughs> that you enjoyed Valentine's as much as I do. And um, I dressed uh, Todd and Copper in little doggy tuxedos yesterday and it was kind of amazing because I found them off of Amazon for like $8 and they're these little scarves that look like tuxedos with um, a black bow tie and it was just, it was a lot of fun. <laughs> they were very adorable. And so for uh, all of you who are already following them on Instagram, or if you want to see all of the cute doggy pictures and have something that is fun and completely totally not political. You can go to two dudes underscore copper and Todd and follow them on Instagram. Well, turning to something a little bit uh, more political, a lot more political. The White House fails time and again to prove Biden's mental capabilities. Back in June of 2022, you'll remember this, a White House press secretary, Karine Jean-Pierre, was asked about President Biden's physical and mental stamina in a CNN interview. She infamously laughed off the question, uh, this coming from Town Hall, calling it unworthy of even being asked and claimed that she, quote, can't even keep up with the president and his vigorous schedule. The following summer, she claimed something very similar again on CNN. She said, quote, it is hard for us to even keep up with this president, she asserted, repeating, according to Town Hall, an obvious lie that nobody believed at the time. Biden is now even older. Eighty six percent of voters say he's too old for the job. Joe Concha, a conservative commentator, said this for those who continue to defend President Biden and insist he is sharp slash active. Here's his schedule for Tuesday in an election year. And after his horrific last week when one ABC poll said 86% of voters don't even think he has the mental acuity for the job. And if you go and see that post on Twitter, um, his entire official schedule is 10 a.m. in town pool call time, 10.15, a press briefing by the press secretary, not uh, Joe Biden. Then at 1230, the president and the vice president have lunch close to the press. This is, you know, very it's very hard to keep up with this. Do remember. And at 245, the president receives the presidential daily briefing. The vice president attends close press. That's it. Uh, I was there and I remember when uh, President Trump, who actually was very hard to keep up with, um, did have a lot of uh, stamina and and actually, um, you know, executed the office of the president well. Uh, when his schedule was just full 
absolutely full from, you know, morning until night. I mean, it would, I would get calls at six in the morning, sometimes five 30 in the morning or, you know, 1130 midnight. I mean, the man did not stop. And yet for uh, February 13th, so this would have been this Tuesday, um, he has lunch on his schedule and then a uh, receipt of a presidential daily briefing where the vice president is attending. So it's not even like he has to really pay attention. She's probably note keeping for him. And, uh, you know, it's probably just just sitting there in lieu of him. And so now the House Judiciary late last night is requesting information from Biden's ghostwriter. This is in the Hill this morning. The House Judiciary Committee asked the ghostwriter of President Biden's memoir to turn over any recordings and notes from his conversation with the president. The letter to Mark Zwanitzer, I think is how you pronounce his name, who helped Biden write uh, his book titled Promise Me Dad and Promises to Keep, asks the ghostwriter to turn over audio recordings and transcripts he has of their conversation. This request comes after special counsel Robert Hur said Biden read aloud passages from notebooks he kept during his time in office, including on three occasions when Biden shared passages dealing with classified information with this ghostwriter. So uh, special counsel Hur's report unequivocally provides that during many of the interviews with his ghostwriter, Biden read from his notebooks nearly verbatim, sometimes for an hour more at a time. This according to the letter by a chair, Jim Jordan, uh, one of our good friends of the program. It goes on to say at least three times Biden read from classified notes from national security meetings uh, to you, the ghostwriter, nearly verbatim. Based on the information in special counsel Hur's report, President Biden's assertion that he never shared classified information with you appears to be false. But Zwanitzer appears unlikely to fully comply with, uh, be able to fully comply with your request because the Hill also notes that Hur's report says that the ghostwriter deleted audio recordings from his computer once the investigation was announced, with law enforcement ultimately recovering the audio files. And he did, however, retain the transcripts. But this has caused Representative Dan Bishop to ask uh, to ask this, and he's also part of the uh, House Judiciary for the GOP, that official uh, committee. He said this on Twitter late yesterday, Biden shared classified information with his ghostwriter. The ghostwriter then deleted audio recordings of their conversations. So what is he hiding? Dan Bishop uh, joined Greta Van Susteren on Newsmax yesterday, and this is what he had to say. This is cut three. What struck me in the letter, first of all, in the letter from the chairman to the ghostwriter says, you took steps to conceal some of these recordings and transcripts. Um, that sort of suggests something a little more sinister than just putting some documents aside. Do you know anything more about that? Well, only what Robert Hur, the special counsel, reported in or set forth in the report, Greta, that uh, some of the recordings on his phone, I believe it was, or other devices had been deleted once he learned that a special counsel had been uh, appointed to handle the matter. And that obviously begs questions about his credibility and whether he was fully cooperative. Certainly he seems to have provided transcripts and other materials so that the special counsel could determine that indeed Vice President Biden, that when he was Vice President um, or subsequently read substantial amounts verbatim to his ghostwriter. And then, of course, we have an impeachment inquiry before our committee. And what Chairman Jordan has done is recognize that 
President Biden called a press conference, went before the country, and guaranteed that he did not do what the special counsel said. So that places Mark Zwanitzer, the ghostwriter's uh, information, testimony, documents, recordings, and so forth, directly in issue in the impeachment inquiry we have. So Chairman Jordan has issued a letter requiring his appearance to testify in a deposition or a transcribed interview and the production of all of the materials that are in question uh, because they're certainly they have a great bearing on our impeachment inquiry now that the president has gone before the nation to deny what the count special counsel said he did so that was Representative Dan Bishop on uh, Newsmax yesterday. And this is, I think, the biggest story in in the country right now, because we clearly have a president that is not mentally capable to fulfill and discharge his duties. And there is a significant enough question about that, that he needs to answer beyond just going and doing this press conference, which, by the way, at that same press conference, uh, he made the mistake of suggesting that Mexico borders Gaza. Uh, and the memes out of that were hilarious. Um, my favorite was um, was someone called a right wing dad who posted, um, you know, I'm, I'm watching this classic tonight. And it was the cover of Prince of Egypt, that that movie that uh, a lot of Christians will recall, Prince of Egypt and um, Moses on the cover, you know, a young Moses who's Egyptian. Of course, as we remember, you know, that uh, that story in, in Genesis and Exodus um, that he, um, that he's wearing a sombrero. Right. And, and just and it's it's ridiculous. And, and I quote tweeted that and said, my favorite part of this film was when uh, Moses parted the uh, the Gulf of Mexico. And it's just it's so patently obvious and it has been obvious for so long that Biden has mental deficiencies. And yet somehow all of the Democrats are just ignoring this. Everyone, including Kamala Harris and her cackle, are trying to prop him up. Um, Joe Biden went and aggressively defended himself and said that he is mentally competent. And for the special counsel to to suggest that in the report that there is such a mental deficiency that they are going to decline to press charges in his classified documents case because of those mental deficiencies and um, because he's he's well-meaning but um, but forgetful and you know some of that other language that was in the special counsel's report well under the law you are presumptively uh, deemed fit and mentally competent to stand trial unless proven otherwise Um, you there are of course defenses um, that that can include um, insufficient mental capabilities. Um, there can be, for example, if you have a child um, even testifying, their present sense um, understanding and their present sense awareness. Um, but even when I was a, a prosecutor in in trial, I, I very clearly remember um, having a case, and it was it was a terrible case of um, child abuse. I won't go into the details, um, but against a, a four-year-old boy. And um, and so, of course, defense counsel was saying, there's no way that a four-year-old can testify. You know, they don't know the difference between a truth and a lie. And sure, esoterically, a four-year-old probably can't articulate you know, to a, to a great philosophical capacity, the, the, the difference morally between a truth and a lie. But any any of us who have been around kids or if you have kids, um, certainly, you know, my, my nephews who are five and three, at the three-year-old knows when somebody is telling the truth or when he is telling the truth 
or is not. And so, you know, when the four-year-old was on the stand during this this hearing to assert that, yes, he's he's competent to testify, um, because it's presumptive that, that witnesses are competent unless shown otherwise. And then, of course, that, that finding has to be made as a matter of law. So it's determined by the judge. Um, I didn't ask the four-year-old, you know, can you articulate the difference, please, sir, good sir, between a truth and a lie? No, I, I was wearing a black suit and I came up to him and said, all right, so what color is this? And, you know, I said black. And I said, so um, if, if the, the judge over here told you that my suit was pink, would that be true? And he laughed and he's like, no, silly. And I'm like, no. So so would that be a lie? And he's like, yeah. you know. And so we went on obvious kind of concrete questions like that. And it was established. Like He knows. He knows the difference. He also had present sense impression of, you know, I remember what I had for breakfast this morning. You know, what did you do with your mom? All of those things that, you know, a four-year-old could could competently say what happened to him. And, and so for Joe Biden to not even be willing to have a competency exam, which he's the first president in U.S. history to decline that, that's a huge red flag. But for special counsel to kind of presumptively determine that as a prosecutor rather than charge and say, you know what, we're going to we're going to allow you to just assert that defense at trial. That to me was a really fascinating opinion. And and I'm sitting here as a lawyer thinking when I'm listening to this press conference and Biden saying, no, I'm fit for office. I'm going, okay, then special counsel should say, fine, then we're going to charge you for this because you can't have it both ways. You can't say, well, Biden's just this feeble, well-meaning old man who also has his finger on the nuclear trigger and access to the nuclear codes, by the way, and is supposedly running the country, by the way. But we're also um, going to, you know, to say that he's this, this feeble old man, you know, he's he's not fit really to stand trial, but we're going to still allow him to run the country. Like, no, you can't have it both ways. And if there was a legal reason that he shouldn't be charged with a classified documents case, like, you know, there was some other um, legal issue that separated his set of facts under the law from, let's say, Donald Trump, who is uh, being prosecuted currently for the classified documents that um, he allegedly held and retained at Mar-a-Lago, then Biden should be in the exact same position. Let him defend and have to defend his mental competency. And so this inquiry and this impeachment inquiry is the only legal remedy that the House has But what I'm also wondering is, where is his cabinet? Why are we not exercising the 25th Amendment? Why is nobody even talking about this? I think, and here's my prediction. I could be wrong. This is just a a political prediction. But I think that all of these things are being set up so that after convention, the Republican convention, national convention, we have a nominee. Biden is going to resign. He'll probably pardon his son on the way out. And Democrats will install someone else because they can according to the rules of the dnc and we're seeing it all play out before our eyes so we'll be right back with more here on jenna ellis in the morning
If you're like most of us, you're paying way too much for healthcare. That's why I want to tell you about a ministry that has been meeting the healthcare needs of hundreds of thousands of Christians, and that's Christian Healthcare Ministries, chministries.org. Christian Healthcare Ministries is cost-sharing made easy. For over 40 years, this unique model has allowed believers to choose their own doctors without worrying about networks or waiting periods, since they are not insurance, but a faith-based alternative to insurance. Members not only get advanced Advantages from the affordability, flexibility, and reliability of CHM, but they also receive access to 24-7 telehealth services at no additional cost. It's no surprise that doctors across the country appreciate working with CHM, and so will you. It all starts with a visit to chministries.org AFR. That's chministries.org AFR. Christian Healthcare Ministries is the longest serving health share ministry serving all 50 states. Share the good news with a friend too. chministries.com slash AFR. Make the switch today with any time enrollment. Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the morning on American Family Radio. Voting rights are sacred, we are told. Americans are in universal agreement that blocking access to the ballot is unconstitutional. Discrimination has no place in our elections, except when it does. This is a great opening line from an op-ed by our very good friend, Jay Christian Adams, who is the president of the Public Interest Legal Foundation and has this op-ed in the Washington Times that is titled, Voting Rights for Favored Children Come to Court, School Board Case in Maryland Alleges First and Fourteenth Amendment Violations. So Christian joins me now. Good morning, sir. And uh, what is the deal with this case in terms of voting rights? Uh, well, that that particular case, uh, Maryland gives children the right to vote for a voting school board member. And everything I just said is real. I'm not trying to play a trick. In Maryland, if you're in sixth grade, uh, you know, and up, uh, in public schools only, only in, the, only in the public schools, you can vote for a student school board member who sits on the school board and not surprisingly was the deciding vote in some in one county to keep schools closed during COVID. Uh, and so we challenge that because kids in Christian schools and Catholic schools aren't allowed to vote. And it also gives disproportionate power to children. Uh, and everything I said is real. This is not a, a, not a trick I'm playing on your audience. It's real in Maryland. This Maryland just seems to have a lot of uh, issues with preferring public schools um, over over private and Christian schools. And so where is this case currently in the legal process? Well, that one's in the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals. We had arguments in December. Uh, and so that case is chugging along. We're just sort of in a holding pattern on that crazy, crazy situation in Maryland where children look. If you live in Maryland and you're an adult, you get three school board members. You get two at large in one district. If you're a high school kid living next door, you get four. You get the same two at large, one district, plus your school board member. That violates Reynolds v. Sims, which is a one-person, one-vote case from 1964. That's what we think. We'll see what the Fourth Circuit thinks. 
Well, the Public Interest Legal Foundation has also released a video uh, documenting the tombstones and obituaries of some of the 26,000 deceased registrants who are on Michigan's voter roll. So you have an ongoing lawsuit against Michigan Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson and expect the case to go to trial uh, this year. So you know this has been something that I know was brought to light uh, for a lot of people nationally in the wake of the 2020 election. Um, there's a lot of concerns about voter rolls. Um, and even, for example, uh, in my former home state of Colorado, I just got an email for ballot tracks um, for Colorado that um, at my former address, my uh, mail-in ballot, because Colorado went to universal vote by mail, was one of the first five states to do that, um, that I'm receiving a ballot at my old address that I no longer live there. So whoever lives there now um, is going to receive that, even though I have informed the Secretary of State I've moved to Florida a year ago. So, you know, this is this is a problem, I, I think, nationally, but particularly in blue states. So um, so how how is Michigan able to keep these deceased registrants on the voter rolls? Well, because nobody has done anything about it. And incidentally, Jen, I would be happy, the Public Interest Legal Foundation, we happy to represent you for free and to get attorney's fees for them not taking you off the rolls. There's actually a federal law that shifts attorney's fees to plaintiffs who are aggrieved from doing badless maintenance. So keep that in mind. Uh, so Michigan, they have been keeping 27,000 deads. We paid a lot of money to get that information. We had, to, we had to hire a lot of data experts who were very good. And we know that some of these dead have been on the rolls since the 1990s. Some have been dead since 1997 and even earlier. So this has happened because of just neglect and an ideological secretary of state who doesn't want to follow federalist maintenance obligations. And we've been, you know, we gave them the data before we sued. We tried to help them like we do other states. And they just dug in and was like, well, we're not going to clean up these roles. We don't know. You're a crazy conservative group. Therefore, we don't listen to you. It's the same. It's like cancel culture when it comes to right to petition the government. So... They just didn't do anything. And so here we are in federal court, and we went out and got video, which you can see at publicinterestlegal.org, uh, of the actual gravestones. We went and visited them in the grave, in the cemetery. And, you know, these are clearly the same people who have been on the voter rolls for 20 years. Did they whisper to you that they're now voting Democrat <laughs> when you visited them? <laughs> no, no, but there were like ballot envelopes sitting on top of the gravestones. I'm kidding. Uh, you know, that that that's the problem is – you go to mail voting, anything can go wrong. Yeah, absolutely. And and we've we've seen how, especially in the wake of COVID and, uh, you know, all of the different uh, laws that were either ignored or unilaterally changed in terms of process and how disruptive uh, that was, to put it mildly, uh, in the 2020 election. And so um, so with this, I mean, there has been a, a call by conservatives to clean up the voter rolls. What is the incentive um, and I think it's it's a little bit obvious, but what is the incentive for secretaries of state like Michigan to not clean up their voter rolls? Well, a couple incentives. First of all, it's federal law. And if you don't do it, groups like mine are going to sue you. And we've sued, you know, dozens of places, actually more than dozens in the last couple of years for failing to, to, to follow federal law. Uh, and so that's one incentive. The other incentive is you're a politician in most states, Jenna. You run for office. You don't want to be mailing materials at great expense to bad addresses. This is an issue that affects politicians because, 
if the voter rolls are 10, 20, 30 percent bad, you're wasting 10, 20, 30 percent of your campaign funds on voter contact. So that's the second incentive. Um, so I think those are two pretty good incentives. Why Je- Je- Jocelyn Benson in Michigan doesn't want to do it, it's ideological. She doesn't think people should be taken off the rolls uh, in, a, in a way that might risk a legitimate registrant who's alive from being removed. They say so. They say so in their defense, like, oh, well, we'll eventually find these using the inactive process, meaning someone who doesn't vote very often or ever. Well, that's not true because there's been people on there since the Clinton administration. We know that, and that's the problem. And I'm speaking with Public Interest Legal Foundation uh, President J. Christian Adams. And you know, it, cleaning up the voter roll seems like just such a an easy step for all of the reasons that you've mentioned. And if there is proof of death. I mean, that that's not going to be somebody who's going to come back and say, you know, hey, I, I want to vote again. Um, you know, you, you took me off the, the, the registration rolls. And even if there were a mistake and someone goes to vote and they say, oh, well, you're not registered. I mean, most states have a very simple process and and you can even register day of in, in most states. So it seems like that type of potential harm really doesn't outweigh the harm of um, of 26,000 deceased registrants on Michigan's voter rolls. Well, right. In federal law, the Help America Vote Act of 2002 also has a safety valve that allows somebody to vote a provisional ballot. If they're in the polls and they I'm sorry, sir, you've been removed because you died. And like, well, I'm standing here. I'm not dead. They have the right to vote a provisional ballot if they should have been on the rolls. So there's multiple safety valves built in the to the process so look there's basic tools that the state should be using to keep the rolls clean it is clear that michigan dropped the ball they didn't keep them clean and then when they heard about it they got into a defensive crouch jenna that's that's the other thing that happens here with some of these secretaries of state is when you bring them information they get defensive they don't like you you're you're on the other team they're, they don't want to do their job because it's it's icky conservatives telling them that there's a problem. And, and that just has no place in American politics. Selective law enforcement. Oh, where have we seen that before? Mm, yeah, well, I immediately think of somebody named Obama. But <laughs> but uh, this, this op-ed is from the Washington Times. The headline is Voting Rights uh, for Favored Children Come to Court. Actually, that's the Maryland one. Um, do, you have an, do you have an op-ed on this one or is it just the video? No, there's lots of op-eds out there in Michigan. I, I, sorry, it's not teed up, but you can go to publicinterestlegal.org and see the video. That's that's way more fun than any op-ed I'd write. So, <laughs> you know, we actually go to the cemeteries and go visit the gravestones of all of these dead active voters in Michigan. Uh, you could see their names. I can't pronounce some of them. You know, they're oftentimes Polish or Eastern European, and the date of birth are an exact match. So these are the people who are active on the voter rolls. Uh, whose graves we go visit. And Christian, you mentioned how you know, a lot of these secretaries of state get really defensive when you know they're they're Democrat and they run Democrat. I mean, these these are um, a lot of them are elected positions. So there's you know Republican versus Democrat. Maybe um, you know an independent or two are running in you know some of these elections. But um, but at least for Jocelyn Benson, you know she's a Democrat, and so hearing from Republicans, it's automatically a partisan issue when you're talking about election integrity. And this is one of the things that is so frustrating um, to me, and I know so many other people who care just about ensuring that only people who are eligible, actually eligible to vote, 
can vote. Dead people aren't eligible. Uh, People who are not citizens are not eligible. I'm no longer eligible to vote in Colorado, by the way, and that's a good thing. It's not that Colorado should just, you know, let anybody vote. I can't vote there because I'm no longer a resident of Colorado. And so these types of safety measures, the left always tries to manipulate and suggest that, well, you're making it so hard for people who want to vote and we need to make it super easy. But what they're doing is taking down all of the safety guardrails to ensure election integrity. And this really shouldn't be a partisan issue. Um, Why are the Democrats so myopically focused on removing all of the safety guardrails so that they can get all of these people who are actually not eligible, like, for example, all the illegals that are coming across the border, potentially, um, into voters? Well, look, this this is a philosophical question as old as the republic. It is a uh, understanding of the founders. Uh, they they knew the the danger of pure democracy. Uh, as I've said many times, it ends in a bloodbath, and they knew that. Whereas uh, around eighteen oh five ish, the 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 Democratic folks, uh, you know Andrew Jackson, uh, Martin Van Buren, these guys started pumping the democratic reforms I think we'd all agree with, but there's just been this ancient tension in the Republic between Republicans in the, in the, you know, ancient Rome sense and the Democrats in the ancient Greek sense. And they've been at each other's, you know, throats, uh, you know, trying to move the country in one direction. And, you know, it happened with Woodrow Wilson through the constitutional amendment to get rid of, uh, you know, to have direct election of senators. And so there's this been long, this long march uh, toward voting with your remote control in front of the TV. I mean, that's what, you know, I used to say it as a joke. They want you to be able to vote with your remote control uh, between episodes of the Jerry Seinfeld show. Um, but in reality, they think that's a good thing. And I'm now I'm now ridiculed for saying that. I, it was a line I used ten, 10 years ago. But now it's like Adam says that people shouldn't be allowed to vote from the remote control at Media Matters. So it's just this long march toward pure direct democracy that they want. And their policy decisions that you mentioned reflect that. Yeah, that that's so well said. And, you know, voting is a privilege and it's and it's, I believe, a duty and an obligation of well-informed citizens. But we are seeing that divide in that difference. Um, and even among conservatives, when you look at how little people really pay attention and investigate some of the issues. And, and I know that, you know, a lot of our AFR audience are very, I mean, they're here and they're listening because they want to be well-informed and they want to engage in uh, the civil process. We want to be good citizens, good stewards of the blessings of liberty that God is given us. But um, but the, the Democrats, I think you're absolutely right, just want um, anyone to be able to participate, even if they're not well informed and can just be persuaded by a TikTok ad from Joe Biden's influencer to say, hey, this is probably a good policy and you should vote for it because, you know, we'll give you French fries at the end of the day like a COVID shot. Right. And, and it's not really a well informed uh, citizen that is engaging in the process. And and we're kind of losing that, I think, um, Christian, on on both sides of being so siloed in our partisanship that we almost don't approach any issue anymore just from the perspective of is this good for the country? It's just is it Democrat or is it Republican? Okay, I'm just going to vote down ticket. And uh, and I think Christians need to be more circumspect than that. 
Yeah, and so you have the best radio audience in the country. I, I've done lots of radio all over the country, and I, AFR audience is, is just about the best there is. Um, thanks, guys. Uh, but you're right, Jenna. They, they this you got to understand something about the left. TikTok voters are great. That they have a right to vote too, so they will say. And what you just said was so old-fashioned. And um, it's interesting because they don't view voting as a contemplative exercise. They view it as an expression of group identity politics and who you are, your skin color, your, you know, are you a, a union worker? That's what determines what your vote is. And so that gives rise, and I heard this at the DOJ, when voter fraud would occur, when I worked at the DOJ as a voting section lawyer, when voter fraud would occur, some people would literally say, what does it matter if that, for example, black person in Mississippi was voted by a notary, which happened all over Mississippi in the case I worked on there? What does it matter? We know how they would vote. And so there was an attitude that voting is not a contemplative exercise. Is it, an, it is an expression of identity politics, and it's not contemplative. The founders of this country, very, very actively realized that the republic can only survive when there are contemplative people steering the ship. This was a huge area of debate around the formation of the, of the country and the Constitution in the early decades of the country, that the republic could only survive if there were thoughtful, well-educated people. This notion of the republican citizen uh, was prevalent throughout the founding, and, and all of the founders thought this country can only survive if the people who are making the decisions and voting are contemplative, educated, thoughtful people. Mm. And, and I hope that we somehow can get back to that. Uh, Jay Christian Adams, really appreciate time today. President of the Public Interest Legal Foundation. You can go to publicinterestlegal.org and see that video that is on their splash page. And uh, and this is exactly right at why the Democrats are always saying that, that they expect groups, for example, like blacks to just vote Democrat because, you know, you ain't black if you don't vote Democrat, according to Joe Biden. Why? Because they have this view that if you fit into a certain category, then you have to follow their policies, their politics, their agenda, which is total progressive leftism and results in Marxism and communism, by the way. So on that note, we'll be right back with more here on Jenna Ellis in the morning. Last year, because of you, Preborn's network of clinics saw over 58,000 babies saved. Thank you to all who made this possible. Let's celebrate these precious babies. Dominique really struggled with her faith when she found out she was pregnant. She didn't know how she could carry her baby to term, but she called on God for help and asked for a sign. That's when she ran into who she calls her guardian angel on the steps of the abortion clinic. This man told her there is a better way, and he walked her across the street to a preborn network clinic. When she saw her beautiful baby on ultrasound and realized that he was an actual person living inside of her, the answer became loud and clear. She chose life for her precious son. Each of these babies are truly miraculous, and every day, Preborn celebrates 200 miracles. $28 a month can be the difference between the life and the death of a child. When a mother meets her baby on ultrasound and hears their heartbeat, it's a divine connection that doubles the baby's chance at life. Let's join together and help mothers choose life. Just dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby. That's pound 250 baby, or visit preborn.com. That's preborn.com. 
Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the Morning on American Family Radio. A new report released on Tuesday has revealed that under the Obama administration, the United States Intelligence Community, or the IC, mobilized foreign agencies long before the summer of 2016 to target Donald Trump before the FBI began its crossfire hurricane investigation into the debunked Trump campaign collusion with Russia. We all remember the Russia hoax, right? So this is according to the post-millennial. In a joint report by Michael Schellenberger, Matt Tiabi, who you will recognize that name, he was one of the ones that released uh, the Twitter files, and Alex Gutentag, sources close to a House uh, Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence investigation revealed that the USIC asked the, quote, five eyes, which constitutes the nations of the US, the UK, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand, to surveil and share intelligence gathered on Trump associates with US agencies. Former President Obama's CIA Director John Brennan reportedly identified 26 Trump associates for the nations to target, and a source confirmed that the IC, quote, identified them as people to bump or make contact with or manipulate. They were targets of our own IC and law enforcement's targets for collection and misinformation. So George Papadopoulos uh, is one of them who was a deep state target, and he tweeted this. All of this is laid out from beginning to end in my bestseller, Deep State Target, How I Got Caught in the Crosshairs of the Plot to Bring Down President Trump, All Roads Lead to London and Rome, Always Did. So George Papadopoulos joins us now, and uh, this is really, I mean, we always have the headlines that say bombshell report, but this is genuinely a bombshell. This confirms everything that <clears throat> conservatives and the Trump camp was screaming during the Russia collusion, uh, the Russian collusion hoax. Yes, uh, Jenna, thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be with you on uh, such a timely um, show, considering the real um, implications of this true bombshell story and suspicions that we find out. Oh, and I think we just lost George. We'll try to reconnect uh, with him. But um, yeah, th- this really is just a, um, a complete bombshell story. And um, our good friend Dan Bongino did kind of an in-depth hour-long um, discussion of this because as a as a former uh, Secret Service agent and having a lot of connections in that world, he suggested yesterday, and I was watching this on social media, that he had had this list of 26 from a source that he didn't reveal. And he actually had this list that he shared yesterday in the wake of all of this. And, and this just shows and I think proves what conservatives have been basically screaming all along that um, that we that the the Democrats have always been out not only just to get Trump but to manipulate everything that they possibly can all of the powers of government the agencies and do whatever they can to set this up for conservatives to fail. And 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 this is what we were just talking about in the last segment with respect to, you know, even some of um, the the decisions made on voting, for example. I mean, to, to just say that this is um, th- this is somehow with good intent, I think, is a complete misnomer. And, and I'm told that we have George Papadopoulos back. So, um, George, you know, again, go ahead and, and discuss how all of this is laid out in your book, Deep State Target. 
uh, either the Steele dossier or this weird um, uh, uh, Kensington wine room story that the New York Times just concocted out of nowhere that they tried to use to justify why the FBI illegally investigated a presidential campaign was bad. Now that we have this new information regarding how the Obama administration basically made the CIA uh, um, get our allies to do the dirty work of them, this just really ratchets it up to a brand new level. And it's something that now I personally, and I know others are calling for people like A.G. Barr, John Durham, John Brennan, and even Obama to come testify publicly in front of oath to discuss why they lied under oath about how the CIA had nothing to do with this operation and really to get some transparency. Of course, as you know, the DOJ isn't going to prosecute. You'll never see any indictments in this uh, under this administration. But when this information comes out, it could really rock independent votes. It could rock, uh, you know, suburban votes and people that usually would not vote for President Trump or conservatives, conservatives in general. This can really tilt the election in, in this year. So this really needs to continue to come out. And then if Trump gets reelected, then have a new DOJ clean house. But I think that's really the process that I would like to see happen. I know many others would, too. Yeah, I think that everyone who has been paying attention to uh, everything that happened from 2015, you know, through 2020 uh, to Donald Trump and, you know, all I mean, the, the truth always comes out. It just always does. And then it seems like there is no accountability for these nefarious actors. And so um, even though, we, you know, obviously we have a DOJ that will be very disinterested in in having any sort of accountability um, on this topic and will probably just ignore it. Um, what could Congress do in terms of at least having oversight and um, investigation committee action to at least generate a report or have some kind of legislative action? Yeah, I, I, that's, that's a very good uh, question. And I think the first and foremost, uh, they need to bring in um, John Durham uh, once again. I know that there was this uh, fiery exchange between Congressman Matt Gates, some other members of Congress, Jim Jordan, who had a lot of faith that John Durham was finally going to let the American people know how, how high up the corruption went. He clearly covered this entire scandal up. He obviously lied under oath when he said that this entire uh, investigation just had a couple mistakes, but there was, real, there was real no collusion or conspiracy against American citizens or the Trump campaign or even Trump himself. That was obviously a lie. So you need to bring back these type of characters, including Attorney General Barr, Obama administration officials, put them in the hot seat and let them tell their story to the American people and let them refute this report. If they, if they believe that they're being uh, lied about, let them refute the report publicly. That's the first step. Second step at the uh, micro level, or I guess you could say it's the macro level, we need to reform FISA. And we also need to reform the Five Eyes intelligence sharing agreement that is now at the center of this, of this bombshell story. We can't have during presidential campaign seasons or even administrations talking to foreign allied governments like the United Kingdom, which is supposedly our closest ally in the world, Australia, another close ally, Canada, New Zealand, and hoping or potentially uh, being under the suspicion that an official from one of these allied governments could be sabotaging 
you, spying on you, recording your conversation to use for nefarious purposes to then transmit it to the opposition in America. That really now strikes at the core of even diplomacy in America, how we conduct ourselves uh, as, uh, you know, at, at the diplomatic core, how members of Congress talk to their colleagues uh, in these countries, because th- if we can't trust our allied governments, then who can we actually trust moving forward in foreign policy, especially in a very dangerous world? And now I think uh, what we can also do, FISA, FISA's up for reform in Congress. There's been a lot of back and forth about should we renew segments of FISA, should we not, should we continue to fund the FBI? I think Ray needs to come to testify as well to discuss how FISA was used and exploited during this process and how this report lays it out. And if he doesn't give good answers, then you need to start defunding the FBI. Don't build this new $1 billion headquarters and really take the teeth out of FISA. Because I think if you don't do this at the congressional level, then they're going to continue to do this type of illegal behavior. They're going to interfere in this election and moving forward. And that's just something that's going to undermine our country, its institutions, and the rule of law and will become a banana republic. Well said. And I'm speaking with George Papadopoulos, and his book is Deep State Target, How I Got Caught in the Crosshairs of the Plot to Bring Down President Trump. And all of this cannot be ignored as well. You know, that was that was 2015 to 2018. You know, we're sort of moving on with some of these other things. This, this is so fundamental to the core of American liberty and freedom and to think that um, our own system and the FISA court can be used to spy on American citizens. I mean, this is why we have things like Fourth Amendment protections to say that we should uh, have security and and be be secure against uh, you know unreasonable searches and seizures by the government um, into our property. I mean, we have protections in place, and yet the very FBI attorney uh, listeners will remember who lied to the FISA court. Um, with respect to, to this entire report and, and this discussion, is is back in good standing in the D.C. court. I mean, they're coming after President Trump's former lawyers, uh, me included, by the way, um, and we're having to defend our bar licenses. And yet the guy who literally lied to the FISA court it, it had just a temporary susp- a suspension and before he even completed probation was back in good standing as a lawyer. I mean, this is how nefarious the deep state is. And and I think, George, um, just in the last few minutes that we have with you, and I so appreciate you coming on today to discuss this, to bring attention to this. Uh, I think that the left is going to do absolutely everything in 2024 and beyond to, to keep Republicans from ever coming into executive power again. And, and they're already trying to um, to basically neuter Congress that should use its purse strings, as you said, to defund and reform FISA, the FBI, all of those things. But I think they're going to do everything they possibly can to keep a Republican from ever gaining the White House again. Well, it's like the old adage, right? It's uh, rules for thee and not for me. And that's uh, uh, that's exhibit A of what you just clearly um, described uh, regarding the FBI lawyer, Kevin Kleinsmith, who uh, was at the center of my case, uh, some of the other cases. And uh, as you mentioned, he uh, obviously pled guilty to felony, um, but now he's in good standing. And of course, he probably is still uh, working as a highly paid lawyer in Washington or somewhere along the East Coast. And I agree with you that the Democrats are going to use every trick up their sleeves. Lawfare is 
fully uh, exhibited right now against uh, not only President Trump, but obviously members of Congress, conservative activists. Uh, what they have done writ large is, uh, is basically normalize the selective and politically motivated targeting of dissent in America, whether you're a parent, whether you're a Catholic, whether you're a Absolutely. religious leader. A next and we got to leave it there, George Papadopoulos, but really appreciate it. And you can always reach me and my team, Jenna, at AFR.net. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast may not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio. I want to thank my sponsors, Preborn and Christian Healthcare Ministries. Preborn Network Clinics have rescued over 200,000 babies from abortion, and every day they save 200 babies' lives. But they can't do it without our help. Will you head over to preborn.com slash AFR and sponsor an ultrasound? Christian Healthcare Ministries is the longest-serving health cost-sharing ministry, helping Christians pay for and pray for one another's medical bills. Make the switch today and start saving. Visit chministries.org/afr. That's chministries.org/afr.